idea of being canceled, this idea of shame, it, it's just a, it's a really deep emotional water, isn't it? And uh, we started talking about it a little bit last Sunday as we had our Easter message, and within the Easter message, I really preached on the prodigal son, and the prodigal son, what with his shame and yet being welcomed back into the father's house, being welcomed back into the father's love. And we had this big idea that we reinforced last Sunday that came from this passage in Hebrews 12 where it said, Jesus endured the cross scorning its shame, like looking at the shame and saying, forget about you, shame. He scorned its shame, and then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, and he did it for joy. He did it for joy. And the, the joy that he had in scorning the, the cross was the joy in bringing us to him and bringing us out of shame. Here, here was the big idea you just saw on the screen from last Sunday. I wonder if you'd read that out loud with me here as we launch into this morning's message. Please join me. Jesus endured shame for the joy of raising us out of shame. Again, this was the idea last Sunday, and it's a baseline of sorts for this message and for the rest of this series that Jesus endured shame for the joy of bringing us out of our guilt and, yes, bringing us out of our shame. He doesn't want us to live in shame. This is a difficult concept, and uh, I want to tell you that this message today is more of a conversation. I like to get into my messages, in case you didn't know. I, I like to get passionate about what I'm teaching. Today is more of a conversation. And there's a little bit of cultural analysis. How did we get to the point that we're at today? And why has shame become such a weapon that we experience in our culture today? And I'm a little bit nervous to talk about it, to be totally honest. I was quite nervous in building this series over the past several weeks because I recognize what deep waters these words are and how intense the experience of shame can be, and how it has a way of crippling us. And all of us have been there at one time or another, me included. I used to wrongly believe that shame was something that kind of was the purview of other cultures. I've studied a lot of sociology and anthropology, and, and there's a number of shame-honor cultures around the world. And I used to think that like Middle Eastern cultures and South and East Asian cultures, those were shame and honor-based cultures. And Western cultures like our own in United States and Europe and, and Israel to some degree, that those are more guilt and judgment cultures. So we don't really have to think about shame too much here, was what I used to think. And my wife wisely said to me some time ago, my wife is... Um, Indian heritage, and she said, you know, Adrian, Indian parents might literally say to their kids, shame on you, but in the West, people look at their kids, shame on you, and they feel it the same either way. It gets embedded in us the same either way. Now, no matter the culture, we experience shame, particularly as children, 
And our brains are actually wired to receive it way before they are wired to experience guilt. And so from a young age, we have this experience of shame that gets added on to as we continue to grow. And shame is like, I would believe, I personally believe, it's the most powerful negative emotion that we can experience. Like, I mean, there's lots of really, really powerful negative and really powerful positive emotions. I think joy is the most powerful positive emotion, but I believe shame is the, the most diminishing emotion we can experience. It makes us weak in the knees. It makes us feel like we have no safe place in this world. It makes us feel like we have no safe place in our home at times or amongst our neighbors or sometimes amidst our, our ethnic group or because of how much money we have or we don't have, we can feel this sense of shame on you. I simply do not belong. And shame has received steroid treatments of sorts through the advent of this thing called cancel culture over the past several years. And again, cancel culture is not new, but it, it has injected steroid treatments in the way it's been weaponized over these past several years, at least across the West. And cancel culture is this phrase that's, that's used to refer to a form of shunning in which people are shunned because of something they've said or they've done, and they are removed from social relationships or from professional circles and maybe they said it on Twitter 12 years ago, and someone found it out, and they can no longer say anything. And it looks kind of like this. This would be a picture of what it feels like to be canceled. And cancel culture is particularly powerful, again, for making you feel like you do not belong, making you feel like there's always someone looking over your shoulders like there's a thought police of sorts that's censoring what you say to be sure that you always say and think the right things. And it creates this fear. And it puts us in these echo chambers in which we end up only listening to people that believe the same things as us, plus or minus 5%. And only spending time with people who believe the same thing as us, plus or minus 5%. And part of that gospel and conversation that we'll have this coming Wednesday night is all about that in this film, The Social Dilemma. The algorithms through our phones that feed us both social media and traditional media are all based on our previous views such that none of us is looking at the same stuff. And therefore, we're being forced into these echo chambers more and more. That is what is happening to us. And the result of all of that is something called tribalism where we say, these are my people, and all these people out here, not only are they not my people, they're my enemies. And we have these different tribes that we end up living in. Again, it's part of cancel culture. And what I want to tell you here at the onset of the other series is tribalism is no place for a Christian to hang out. It is no, like, you simply cannot reach out to someone that you view as the other. You will not be able to reach someone that in your mind you hate. We feel this cancel culture in cable news programs today where the presupposition seems to be, how can I drum up more fear and anger toward the other side? We feel it online. Like if you write a thoughtful post 
on anything that would be remotely controversial, be it your faith or race or gender or some cultural trend. Just watch, no matter how thoughtful and sensitive you are, the fangs will come out and people will come for you. Worst of all, we sometimes feel this in our families. I wonder, have you been canceled or something like that, even the feeling of canceled by someone in your family at one time or another? Don't raise your hand if they're in the room right now. <laughs> have you been there? Yeah, okay, a few hands. I've certainly been there. There's a few people in my family that over the years have not wanted to talk to me at all because they know I'm a conservative follower of Christ. I seek to be loving to them. I always seek to interact in a loving manner. But a refusal to talk, basically, at all, because I will not compromise what I believe the Bible says. Even as I seek to say it with love and pick my spots. Okay, if you've gone through that with someone you love, you know how destabilizing it is, how it diminishes you, how it makes you feel like, I really don't have a place here, I need to go into hiding. Such is the effect of cancel culture today. It, it will help us to be able to differentiate in this series between guilt and shame. Here's a definition for, for guilt. Guilt is basically the, this idea very simple, found throughout the Bible. I have done something bad. I've done something wrong, and I am in need of forgiveness. I've done something wrong. I have fallen short of my own standard. Even worse, and much larger, I've fallen short of God's standard, which is way up here. And I realize it was wrong in my thoughts, in my words, in my actions, I have done what is wrong, I have hurt someone, and I need to resolve it, I need God's help in resolving it. I feel guilt over what I have done wrong. King David, in the Old Testament, King David had appropriate guilt when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he was called to account by a friend of his by the name of Nathan. And as David is called to account, he falls to his knees and he realizes guilt and he's cut to the core and he seeks God's forgiveness and that's called Psalm 51. It's David's confession that he writes down for us to see what guilt and repentance and the request for renewal would look like. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Let me ask you, do you look at your sin that way? I'm sure we look at other people's sin that way. But do we look at our own sin that way? Which is the only one that we have any influence on. 
You are justified when you judge me, O God. It goes on, verse 10, create in me a pure heart, O God. Please forgive me. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You can see more of the context of that passage in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, but suffice it to, t- to say for, for right now, David and his friend Nathan have this mutually agreed upon standard for accountability. David trespasses that standard, and Nathan calls him to account on the basis of that standard. David feels guilt because of that standard. He repents because of how he missed God, God's mark, and then he begins to grow up. It happens out of the goodness of guilt. Now, I'm speaking in generalities here, but the Judeo-Christian ethic that many of us were raised in, in Western cultures like this one, and that I would say Western cultures were founded upon, included included language of morality and sin and guilt and accountability and all of those things. And whether someone was a Christian or a Jewish person, or they believed saw some different things, maybe they were a deist, maybe they had a number of different beliefs amongst our founding fathers and others that, um, that grew up in our nation over the first couple centuries, really, of our nation. There is this mutually agreed upon moral ethic amongst Christians and non-Christians in which people could be called to account. Now, today, in the past 30, 40 years, that's been lost, hasn't it? There's not a mutually agreed upon ethic anymore. And so the result of that is we no longer have a language, a mutually agreed upon language for sin and guilt and forgiveness and accountability. It's why you really don't hear those words at all outside of the church anymore. What God intends is that guilt would be like a doctor's scalpel for us, like doctor's stitches for us. At first, it would really hurt us when we experience guilt, but then it heals us. And my friends, it's basic to the gospel message that we would preach this to ourselves, and we would preach this to our kids, we would preach this well within our life groups, that I am created in love, that you are created in love, but all of us have fallen short of God's standards, and we do so again and again, But we look up to him and we ask him for forgiveness and he forgives us again and again and he draws us near to him and that produces a gratitude. Even as we maintain this objective standard which serves as a marker for us to aim at and a reminder for us when we miss it that Jesus is always faithful to forgive us of our sins and cancel all of our trespasses from us. Amen? This is basic to the gospel message. And we must hold on to this language. My belief is outside of this language, what is starting to happen in America right now is as that language is being removed, people are just shifting towards shame. And they're not sure why they're canceled out, they just know that they are. And they haven't exactly sinned, they've just trespassed some moral norm some new cultural norm that they weren't previously aware of. Moreover, the simple fact is, outside of really clear gospel teaching about the mercy and love of Jesus, 
that envelops us in the middle of our guilt and forgives us and refreshes us and renews us. Outside of that teaching, here's what happens with guilt. Guilt gets hijacked by shame. Guilt becomes shame outside of the full message of God's mercy and grace to us. Now here's a definition for shame. Shame is, I am bad and I feel horrible about myself. Again, guilt is I've done something bad, I need forgiveness. Shame is, I'm the problem. I'm bad. I'm a failure. I am a mess. I am small. I am weak. I do not belong. I feel horrible about my very self. Shame makes you feel like you have no safe place. I think shame is so terrible that it should be reserved for Satan and the spring winds. Shame on you winds, get behind me. Right? Come on. Come on. You'll second that. Thank you, brother. Like, shame makes you feel worthless. Again, that word that you saw on the screen in the beginning was contempt. This look of contempt from someone is so powerful within relationships for making someone totally weak. Guilt can be both intellectual and emotional, but shame is this felt emotion that makes us shake, it makes us uh, flush in our face, makes us feel again like we don't belong. It goes down into the marrow of our bones, and it makes it very, very difficult that we can, to feel like we could find our place at all. Now, if you want to know what um, would be an area of possible shame for you. I'm sure you don't want to know that, but you could fill in this sentence stem. I don't want people to think this of me. Whatever it might be. I don't want people to think that I'm weak. I don't want people to think that I'm poor. I don't want people to think that I'm fat. I don't want people to think that I'm liberal. I don't want people to think I'm conservative. Like whatever it is that you would fill in that sentence stem, I don't want people to think this of me will be a powerful provoker of shame in your life. If there's any hint that other people might think that of you, you'll run into hiding. You'll put up some armor, you'll put up a mask to protect yourself against that perception. The corollary of that is also true, that you'll work really hard to pridefully present the opposite of that. So if you fear people thinking that you're weak, you will pridefully show people how strong you are. On and on. One of them thought for me is, I don't want people to think that I might be a imposter. Sometimes I can have the imposter syndrome. Like, what if they find out that I'm actually not smart enough to lead a church like this? What if they find out that I'm not good enough to do what I'm doing? I'm not experienced enough that I can't handle a church this wonderful? What if I don't have what it takes to lead my two wonderful boys to become the men that God would call them to be? 
What if I'm not enough in that area? And when I start to feel that from one of you or someone else in my family, whoever it might be, you will see this relatively dark Italian face get flushed with shame, okay? Shame will come over me because I fear being found out that perhaps I'm an imposter. By the way, there is power in vulnerability. There is power in admitting whatever that sentence stem would be to one or two other people or 700 good friends. Okay, don't you use it as a weapon against me, I'm telling you. Okay, all right. We all have one. And we're scared of our vulnerable areas, but there's power in admitting it. Again, guilt says that I have done something bad. Shame says that I am bad. I am the problem. The prodigal son, he felt both guilt and shame. When he comes back to the father after making a mess of his life, he says, I have sinned against heaven and against you, father. That's guilt. I am no longer worthy to even be called your son. What's that? That's shame. First part is good. I've sinned against heaven and you, that's guilt. Second part, I'm no longer even worthy to be called your son. That's bad and it's crippling for us. Again, it's devastating enough to send us into hiding. Shame's lie is basically this, I must hide. The lie that shame tells us is I need to go into hiding. Turn over with me in your Bibles to page two. Genesis chapter two. We're gonna look at Genesis two and Genesis three for just a few minutes this morning as these paint a portrait for us of the roots of shame and how it goes back to the very beginning of humanity's story. God creates the first couple, Adam and Eve, and everything is good for them. God invites them to live in loving relationship with one another for life. He gives them this covenant of marriage that they would leave all others, they would cleave to one another, they would come together emotionally and spiritually, come together under the same home, and then after that, they would enjoy each other sexually as well. They would become one flesh with each other, and they would fight for each other across their lives. They would fight for this covenant that God has given to them. All of that is in the early passages of Genesis chapter two. He prescribes that they would be together and then it says this, verse 25, Adam and his wife were given this covenant, they were both naked and they felt no shame. Wow, they're both naked, they both have this wonderful gift and they feel no shame with each other. Like think of all the different words that God could have used in this moment. They were naked and they were confident. They were naked and they were happy. They were naked and they were nervous. They were naked and they were joyful. They were naked and they were afraid. No, they were naked and they felt no shame. Very intentional words used there by God. God chose these words, naked and felt no shame, to communicate this idea that they are in the most vulnerable state, and yet in that vulnerability, they're safe with each other. And they're safe before God. There was no guilt, there was no shame. There was no pollution, they were living in paradise, they had meaningful work, their relationships were pristine. But it didn't last too long, did it? It goes on, verse one. 
Now the serpent was more crafty, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from fruit. We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God must be a killjoy who is holding out on you, Eve. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. The act that interrupts all of the beauty was the initial act of disobedience to God. And frankly, my friends, this is the same act that interrupts beauty for us in our relationships with God. Like every sin has this as a baseline. I know what's best for me. I will do what's right in my own eyes. I understand, God, that you've provided some boundaries outside of which I will not flourish, but dang it, I know what's best for me. That's what every sin is. And this is exactly where the serpent wants this first couple to go. The Bible says he's crafty. He's sneaky. And so he enters in and he implants this seed of doubt into their mind. Oh, don't you understand that God is holding out on you? He really doesn't want well, what's best for you. The enemy enters in and he seeks to disrupt this vertical relationship between Adam and Eve and but between the father who created him, created them. And once that doubt is embedded, she exchanges this beautiful relationship that she has with God for a pair. She gives up that relationship for this wonderful, sweet, delicious fruit. And Adam is every bit as much to blame because where is he? He's like on the side right next to her playing video games, picking his nose and saying, what do I have to do with this? Okay, this was a group effort between both of them. He passively watches on, which men are known to do for centuries forthcoming. Passively watches on as opposed to entering in and caring about her. He gives his tacit approval to the whole thing. Now notice this cycle of shame that emerges out of this. Look once again at verse seven. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. Okay, they, they realize they're vulnerable now and they're not sure what to do with that vulnerability. Next line. So they go into hiding. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They're scared in that vulnerability. They're afraid, what must he be thinking about me as he sees me in my vulnerable state? What must she be thinking about me as she sees me in my most vulnerable state? They go into hiding. They make fig coverings for themselves. Then verse 8, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And what'd they do? They hid. 
So like everything's messed up now. The relationship with each other is messed up. The relationship vertically, well, with God is a mess right now. And this is the cycle of shame that was produced by that first couple and has been reproduced by us ever since. It's basically this. From vulnerability to being afraid to going into hiding. And we all face this. Why is it that a very simple TED Talk by a woman named Brene Brown has now been, it's only about two things, vulnerability and shame, has been viewed 57 million times. Why? Because vulnerability is this universal experience that we all hate, that we do not want to admit to, but we all know that we have. Friends, every person in this room is vulnerable. Every person in your family is vulnerable. Every person in your neighborhood is vulnerable. And when we feel that, what we naturally do is we go into hiding. It goes from vulnerability to fear, and then from that fear of being found out as an imposter, or not smart enough, or not pretty enough, or not strong enough, not conservative enough, all those different things. From there, this fear of being found out and then going into hiding. And we end up hiding from our neighbors and hiding from certain family members and sometimes even hiding within our marriages. And then we go into hiding at times from other ethnic groups. And we go into hiding from anyone that we think might not fully understand us because we would anticipate that in their presence, perhaps I'm not enough. So get me some fig leaves. First, they're naked. They're unafraid and unashamed. Then this decay happens in the matter of a few verses right in front of our eyes. They are naked, they're afraid, and they're ashamed. And again, that's the story ever since. Like, this is anthropology on display right in the first pages of the Bible. Zoom out with me, and here's the big idea though, that we get out of this passage, and as it relates to our experience of shame and that of so many family members and friends though, that we love, God created us to be vulnerable and unashamed. Shame takes our vulnerability, and it sends us into fear and hiding. This is what shame does all the time. It takes our vulnerability, it says you're not safe, and therefore I send you into fear and hiding. The lie is that I need to hide. What they needed instead was to admit that they are vulnerable and go back to God and get the help that God would provide in their place of vulnerability. They end up hiding from God. The starting point, if you're feeling vulnerable, if you're feeling shameful, if you feel like you're living in in hiding, the starting point is being honest with God. Like, friends, do you realize you can be honest with God? You cannot escape his eyesight. He sees the beginning from the end. He's the alpha and the omega. He sees it all. The very best place to confront our shame is to admit where we're vulnerable to God. And ask him to meet us right there, to hold us right there. And out of that, being honest with God, we pray for a couple friends. Perhaps we pray within our marriages. The newfound spirit 
a vulnerability would be found. I pray this for our life groups, that men would be able to divide with men, and women would be able to divide with women, and there would be two or three others within our life groups that we know I can be vulnerable and I won't be hit. I won't be punched. It won't be weaponized against me. I can be safe with these people. And when we experience that with just a few others, what happens is we learn, oh, it's actually true. It's okay not to be okay in this fellowship. It's okay not to be okay in the presence of God. I can remove my, my mask, which I have to wear at work five days a week. It's exhausting, right? It's exhausting. I can remove that mask, and I can be safe with this person, and they'll be tender with me. I don't have to go into hiding. I don't have to fear with this person. God would overcome our guilt before allowing it to become hijacked by shame through the power of loving relationship well with him that we come to him we realize that we're safe in his presence and we begin to come to a few others and realize we can be safe with them. The good news is this truth. Even in our shame, God continues to pursue us. This is what he did for that first couple. Even in the midst of their shame, even in the midst of their guilt, he did not quit on them. Verse eight, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Do you think he knew where they were? You better believe he knew where they were. He knows just where they are, and he is still going after them. He wants them to say, we're right here in our mess. We'll be with you, God. (laughs) Instead, they're hiding. He says, where are you? I'm coming to you. Where are you? And Adam answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. God's response is to run toward us right in the midst of our guilt and shame. Our natural response is to run away from him. What we need to do is to draw near to God and experience that he draws near to us. He loves us right where we are. He would draw near to us. And this is so much the story of the Bible from this point forward. It's a rebellious people that go their own way, and God says, I won't quit on you. I am not done with you. I am still running after you right in the middle of your guilt and your shame. This is the story of the prodigal father who comes to the prodigal son And he's looking for the son through the window of his little house. And as he sees the son afar away off, he's filled with compassion for his son. He runs toward his son. He throws his arms around his son in the middle of his guilt and his shame, and he forgives his son. This is the story of the gospel. He runs to us even while we're in hiding. We would simply avail ourselves. We would do well to avail ourselves openly in our vulnerability to him and to a couple others. I heard the greatest story last week from one of my friends here in this church. He shared with me that at his son's daycare, his son is four years old, and his son's daycare, they talk a lot about good choices and bad choices. And uh, sometimes his son can feel bad about the things that he did, just like all of us. And the father picks up the son from daycare after school one day last week, and he asks his boy, how was school this week? How did daycare go today? How did it go today, my son? And the son says to his dad, I'm just a really bad boy, daddy. 
Is that guilt or shame? Tell me. That's shame. I'm just a really bad boy daddy. And that father had a choice in that moment. Am I going to reinforce this shame? Am I going to pounce on him? Am I going to embed it in his brain? Or am I going to counteract that and use it as a teaching opportunity? And what the father said to his son in that moment was, no, my dear son, you are not a bad boy. You made a bad choice today. And tomorrow you have an opportunity to make really good choices. And you're a really good boy, and I believe in you, my son. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. I see you in your shame. I interrupt it. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to tell you your place is really safe right here. That's what that father did for that boy in that moment. Friends, the only thing that God cancels is your debt. (laughs) That's it. The only thing God cancels is your trespasses, your sins. God doesn't cancel you. He refuses to cancel you. In fact, the Bible even tells this about the basic gospel message of Jesus Christ on the cross. Look at Colossians 2, and I'll close with this far from the screen. It says this, you were dead because of your sins. You and I were dead because of our sins. Then God came to us and he made us alive with Christ for he forgave us all of our sins. He canceled the record of our sins. Imagine that as you appear before a judge. There's a record of your sins before a judge. God says, "Uh uh-uh, that record is no more. I'm canceling that out. I'm taking that, I'm gonna crinkle it up, turn it into a little piece of waste paper, and I'm going to nail it to the cross, and I'm never gonna look at it again. This is the love of our Father for us. The truth is he pursues us right in the midst of our guilt or our shame. He cancels the written ledger of sins and trespasses that he had against us through the cross of Christ such that he would never cancel you or me. So grateful for that, God. So grateful for that. So grateful for this basic message that you will never cancel me out. You'll never cancel any of us out, Lord. You never quit on any of us. You never stop running toward us. You never give up on us. No matter what we've done prior to this morning, you won't quit on us. We can simply come to you as we are in the midst of our nakedness and our fear, and you will have us right there. And you would tend to us, and you would forgive us of our sins, and you would set us on a new journey of following you more and more. I want to see you more like that, Father. I confess to you, God, that I want to see you more like the Father in the story of the prodigal son, who isn't scorning me when I fail, but chooses to keep running toward me in the midst of my failures who doesn't say to me, what a failure you are, but says to me, you were lost, but now you're found. I love you, and I'm not giving up on you. That's what we want as a church, Lord, that we would know you that way, and we would no longer be crippled by the messages of shame that come every day from our culture. May we be a people. May we be a community. May we have marriages and families 
that are characterized once again by love and trust and safety, forgiveness and hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which frees us. In the powerful name of Christ, we pray all these things. Amen.